This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm David Spears, once again joining PK in the studio, which is lovely. Thanks for having me back. Oh, thank you. Soon we're going to be joined by the ABC's David Lipson, who's been in Ukraine, he's been on the border with Hungary, he's all over what's been going on, and a fair bit has been going on in that part of the world over the last uh, several weeks. So we'll talk to him about that shortly. fair bit going on domestically, though, too, PK. Yeah, we had our own biggest story, haven't we, on on our land where we live, and it's been huge, David. We've been hit by more natural disasters. Queensland and New South Wales, as you all know, in fact, many of you will be listening from flood flooded areas, so you don't need me to tell you, but have been smashed by heavy rain and floods, and it's a big it's a big thing, right? Oh, it is. We'll get into that. And just a minor side note: the PM contracted COVID. First of all, can I just thank everybody for their very kind wishes after I confirmed last night that uh, I tested positive for COVID uh, and also for your kind words in relation to Jen and the girls. Uh, they're both, they're all negative, uh, but obviously uh, close contacts and be isolating here in Sydney. So he does sound a bit crooked, doesn't he, Did David? you see the little Facebook thing that he did? It yeah. was it was pretty clear that uh, he, he is unwell. Um, look, the, the backstory, he was, what, getting a bit of a sniffle or a cough from Sunday. He took rapid tests each day. Tuesday afternoon, obviously went downhill, uh, took a PCR Tuesday evening, obviously got the result back pretty quick, and it was just before midnight, I think 11.30 or thereabouts, that uh, he put out the statement saying, yep, he's got... He's got COVID. What does it mean politically, PK? Yeah, that's the big question. The big question is his health. I mean, so far he's 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 getting through it, right? He's, yeah. he's vaccinated. He's boosted, all of that. All of that, right? So he's in the best situation yep. you can possibly be in. He's the Prime Minister too, so I'm assuming he's getting good good health care. And in some ways it's it's amazing he hasn't had it before now, given... I was yeah. thinking that too. A few people noted, as I was reporting it, obviously, on RM Breakfast, that... You know, why do we even care anymore? Like, we've gotten a few years into this pandemic. We can't report everyone who gets COVID. And I was like, well, that's actually, he's the prime minister. He's going to isolate for seven days. He's following the rules. Yeah. But also, he hasn't had it all this time. So it's been remarkable that he's avoided it. Okay, so the politics, because that's it's a political podcast. We're not, we're not we're coronacast. Not, not we're not going to analyse his health. Uh, no one expects us to. I I think that um, the timing is not fantastic for him because this is f- this is a flood crisis that's emerging across the country. He's been stung by the black summer bushfires where he did go to Hawaii. This is so different. He's actually sick. He's not, you know, abandoning anyone. He's actually really sick. But it was an opportunity to make up for some of that. It was. It was the big chance. And and I think they, they wanted to do that. You can tell from having their ministers out. I've spoken to lots of, you know, government front benches who want to talk about what they're doing to help people who are really, really suffering at the moment. So that's not so good. But you and I have been talking to people, we both know, and I think people want to know, that there's been a lot of game gaming what will happen during the election campaign for both political parties if MPs 
uh, sitting people running for the election or the prime minister or opposition leader get COVID during the campaign. Campaigns are five week long usually. So it's kind of all right timing that he's got it now, but we know you can get Omicron again. You can get it again. Look, clearly it's a lot better now than during the mid-campaign, right? No, no question about that. A um, couple of things. You're right. I think this um, natural disaster we're focused on, not to mention Ukraine and the national security uh, dramas that are playing out, great opportunity for him to be the statesman, be the prime minister and take control and, and you know, all of, tick all those boxes, play to his, you know, perceived coalition strengths on, on that those issues. Um, so he's he's denied the opportunity to do that. Uh, but, you know, I think with floods, I don't know about you, but a lot of people I suspect get sick of seeing politicians constantly milking these things. And they're annoying when they turn up. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, perhaps with the wall-to-wall coverage of floods uh, over the last few days in particular, not a bad time for the PM to be out of, off the scene, off the stage. But he is missing the opportunity to be in WA with the border reopening. And Anthony Albanese was um, straight away, uh, you know, within hours of the border opening, landing and showing his love for all things Western Australia. The PM will have to do that at some later point. Yeah, and it's clearly not going to happen at the moment. Look, he can still, though, and that's what he's doing, let's see what more they will offer, he can manage the sort of Commonwealth support for the flood disaster from yeah, anywhere. Exactly. He doesn't have to be, he's, he's you know, doesn't hold a hose. He, do, <laughs> um, he, he doesn't have to hold a sandbag. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to flip the language that's used against him to actually make the practical point. He can fund the the, the, the the cleanup and the help. So let's go to some of the language he's been using. Listen to the way he's talked about the government's emergency management plans and the response to the disaster. So I want to assure people, whether you're in Brisbane, uh, whether you're, you're up there in Maryborough or out in Gympie or across northern New South Wales, or indeed those parts of the rest of the country are yet to be hit by these floods. At the same time as we're preparing the response to be there, we're already preparing together with the state and local governments the recovery and the clean-up operation and assets are being pre-positioned and planning is underway for that purpose. So that's the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, speaking about uh, the Commonwealth's approach. David, um, OK, so they've got the disaster emergency payments, criti- criticism mm-hmm. that they haven't increased since 2006, $1,000 That's mm-hmm. been a little looming yeah. issue, but it's it's not yet hit, you know, m- main stage. Fair point. Yeah, then there's these, this funding. The, the Prime Minister talking about natural disasters, but Labor went on the attack saying uh, the Morrison government had fudged the figures for disaster relief payments. The government says they've spent $17 billion on relief payments, but the figure does also include $13 billion in coronavirus pandemic measures. So it's a I bit think, fudgy. I think it's a, it does seem fudgy to me. Yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm sure not the first government to uh, uh, overstate what they're spending in, in a particular area, particularly um, disaster management. But yeah, that, that number certainly looks a little fudgy. Um, this emergency, uh, what's it called? Disaster, emergency disaster fund. I've got the name of it wrong, but you know what I'm talking about. 4.8 billion bucks. It's there to run like the future fund, and that is to grow. And the earnings from that, the interest, the revenue that generates is then spent on things like uh, flood mitigation, bushfire mitigation, um, you know, levies and, and so on. Uh, now, it has been earning a hell of a lot of money. What is it? Mm. $800 yeah, million, million dollars yeah. in a few it's years? It's doing all right. Yep. Uh, now, it has spent some money, but Labor's point is about $50 million of that has gone to flood mitigation, but not one project has started construction. That's a that's a problem. I think that's a bit of a weakness there. But look, the government can point to other uh, areas where it is spending outside of this particular emergency disaster 
fund, that bucket of, of, of money. Um, I think with any sort of big natural disaster like this, you, you, the government's going to be judged on a few things. One is how it responds in terms of um, immediate relief for those who need it. One of the concerns that's coming through out of northern New South Wales is getting food, water, petrol, basic supplies into these tiny towns that have been cut off. That, I think, is something that state and federal governments need to urgently address and can be marked down for if if we do see this problem continue for some days. Um, they, they obviously get marked on what preparations were put in place. That's the mitigation stuff. Climate change comes up as well, doesn't it, every time we have a natural disaster Of course disaster it does. Now. It does, and it's come up this week, and the timing... Um is really let's let's talk about the the timing which was just a coincidence but it came at the same time as this intergovernmental panel on climate change reported known as the IPCC that's the acronym that people use it, it claimed climate change is already affecting billions of people and causing widespread environmental disruption and we know it is but but it found ecosystems are already enduring the maximum level of climate change they can adapt to so david Basically, the stock take is climate change is making these events, including the one we are currently having, mm. more often yep. and more extreme. That is a fact, yep. and it's not being contested by the government. The pressure will now be, are they doing enough? Are we doing enough heavy lifting to actually deal with it? And I, I put that to, you know, one of the nationals I spoke to this week, and he said, yeah, we're going to net zero emissions by 2050. And I was like, yeah, 2050, some time away. We are currently in a disaster do will labor exploit the the, the differences here uh, look it's it's a good question i got to say i mean generally politicians as i mentioned earlier uh, um, uh, find it harder i guess to get their voice out when we're so focused on the current emergency uh, response but I, I haven't seen labor really cut through with that line on climate change in this particular disaster in the way they have i think previously with bushfires they did during the bushfires yeah. it really cut through didn't it yeah i just i don't know maybe it will over time and it's hard to know whether this the climate change aspect of the, the this flooding will shift votes in those particular areas. Um, you know, have people already made up their minds, scored down the government on climate change, if if that's their view? But the government's pivoted in terms of the language it's using. Yeah, it's when not, I put it's not mucking is around. Is this climate with the debate, change? Right? Yeah, no, yeah. they're not saying. I don't know. I, as I say, like I've I asked this question. Um, and the answer has been, of course, climate change is making. Whereas a couple of years ago, yes, that's the difference. Very different. You know, there would have been certainly in the Nats plenty who would have said to you, "How dare you even ask that question that's right it. now?" That's and a I haven't been told, "How dare I ask?" Right. What I have been told, and yeah. I still think this is this needs to be interrogated, is, "Oh yeah, we've net zero 2050. It's all good. We're doing good," mm. and that. That's where I think there is going to be a contest still, whether it cuts through, it's not quite cutting through. Well, let's, like, let's, like... let's be real here. The net zero commitment is important. The government's plan to get there, though, is pretty rubbery. Uh, and, you know, what it actually involves uh, between now and 2030 is the same old target that Tony Abbott, Tony Abbott put in place, right? 26 to 28%. So, you know, it, it's not a dramatic change right now. I think the other thing both sides... Um, need to focus more on, and will have to focus more on, and, and each natural natural disaster tells us this is mitigation. Um, you know, if we are going to see more frequency and more severity of these um, floods and fires, we are going to need to spend a hell of a lot more, whether it's through this fund that we were talking about or other areas, on mitigation. Mitigation is the key. Um, as he's dealing with a broader issue, but clearly, you know, actually being prepared for it mm. and. 
Uh, anyway, this is unfolding. We're recording this on a Thursday morning and now obviously Sydney's being hard hit um, with, you know, as we record, 500,000 people subject to evacuation orders and warnings. So it's pretty real. And if you're in listening and you're still cleaning up or you're still, you know, um, our genuine thoughts are with you. I am, we're recording in Melbourne. We are not in this situation at the moment. Um, Beautiful sunny day. Yeah. Unusual, weirdly. Yeah. Uh, who would have thought it? Um, all my New South Wales relatives, I'm like, hey, it's not bad here in Melbourne where you've mocked me for living. We take it while we can. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right. Let's turn to another thorny, difficult, heavy, I'm sorry, yeah. it's so bleak. But we must talk about the other major story of the week and our times, Russia's continued invasion of Ukraine. Um, Now, before the Prime Minister was diagnosed with COVID, uh, we saw Scott Morrison pledge more money and support and lethal aid to the Ukrainian government. Here's what the Prime Minister said. We're talking missiles. We're talking ammunition. We're talking supporting them in their defence of their own homeland in Ukraine. And we'll be doing that in partnership with NATO. I'm not going to go into the specifics of that because I don't plan to give the Russian government a heads up about what's coming their way. But I can assure them it's coming your way. Tough talk from the Prime Minister. Okay, so David, that is seventy million to buy military equipment and weapons for Ukraine through NATO, thirty five million for humanitarian support. What do you make of the commitment? Look, I think it's absolutely in step. And this is the key. This is the most important thing. We're, we are moving in lockstep with our allies, US, UK, Europe. Um, and, and we've done that with the sanctions step by step by step now with this uh, lethal military support, as it's being called. So I think that's uh, that's entirely uh, understandable and, and appropriate that we apply that unified pressure, which has been so important when it comes to um, dealing with Putin. Uh, look, we're not being told what the weapons are. Uh, you know, this is... Apparently, for security reasons, the PM won't won't reveal. Other countries have, you know, Germany's been very clear about missiles and anti-tank weapons. Other countries too. But anyway, um, Australia's not detailing exactly what we're supplying. Uh, and indeed, I think I suspect a fair bit of this will just be money for NATO to mm. um, to send in weapons. That would seem to make sense. Um, so look, all of that's fair enough. The rhetoric has has been pretty tough, I would say, from both uh, Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton, um, and they're still targeting a lot of their focus at China as well here whenever they talk about Ukraine, um, basically wanting China to get off the fence and condemn Russia. Uh, they're wanting also to send the message to China that, uh, you know, any sort of action like this on Taiwan would be would be met with a unified Western response uh, as well. So, look, I, I think the, the, the response from the Australian government has been pretty appropriate, I've got to say, uh, so far. I think so too. Now, it might seem to you a lifetime away, David, but you began the week as I consume everything and mm. probably need to <laughs> tone it down at some point <sighs> for my mental health. Uh, but David, I You'll began the week. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. David, I began the week watching your interview with Penny Wong and she couldn't have been clearer about there being almost zero difference yeah. on the foreign policy response on these themes. And I thought that was a key moment. Um, Really, we'd already heard, to be clear, from Labor that they were in lockstep, but it was uh, unequivocal. She didn't take any opportunity, did she? No, if anything, you know, Penny Wong was very clear about the support on all these sanctions. Um, And if anything, I think she gave the government cover to go further, which it then did uh, with the lethal military aid. I mean, you know, cover for what I expect will come, and that's the booting out of the Russian ambassador at some point. I'm just guessing here, but that seems to be the direction. Again, we'll only do it when our allies do it. All of this is coordinated, and I think that's really important. You don't want countries... Um, you know, running their own race and, you know, embarrassing each other by mm. who's the most 
tough and hairy chested and so on. I think this sort of unified step by step approach has been really important to show that the West can work together. That's right. Should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. David Lipson, ABC reporter and former Washington bureau chief and Indonesia correspondent. Welcome to the party room. Thanks, PK. David Lipson, uh, you've been very busy over the last few weeks uh, over there in Europe. I know you've spent time in Ukraine uh, filing your piece for Foreign Correspondent, which is uh, Thursday evening. You can watch it on iView, of course. You've been to the border, too, uh, between uh, Ukraine and Hungary. Uh, You're back in London at the moment. Let's start on the border situation where you've just been. Tell us about what's happening with refugees uh, fleeing Ukraine at the moment. Well, it's a pretty extraordinary scene, um, scenes that we we really haven't seen for for a long time, uh, where really almost entirely women and children and the elderly uh, are fleeing because the men are being forced to stay behind. They they can't actually cross over the border, the Ukrainian men. So unless men have a foreign passport, they can't get out. And so, uh, you know, we just saw hundreds and hundreds of women and children, you know, just streaming across the border. And where we were on the border with Hungary, it was perhaps all the more extraordinary because Hungary, certainly in recent years, has not been very welcoming at all to migrants with the European migrant crisis and, um, you know, Mm. migrants fleeing Syria mostly. Uh, They they were met by razor wire. Um, This time, uh, Hungary is uh, very much opening its arms to its neighbours and uh, and allowing them in. But it's it's really causing major disruptions, um, you know, to, to not just the country's neighbouring Ukraine, but all of, of Europe, the ripples uh, are sort of flowing outward, this, this just massive... And, and just to pick up on a point you made there, I mean, this, mm. this must be traumatic for them to have left their, their, their husband, their dad, uh, you know, behind because they have to stay and fight while they flee with their young kids across the border. Um, what can you tell us about the state that they're in? It's just heartbreaking to see. I mean, they are absolutely distraught. And, and even, you know, at the, the little hotel we were staying, there, were, there was a family there, the kids and, and, and the mum, and, and they were doing a you know video call to, to dad who was left, left behind. Uh, you know, we spoke to uh, a Ukrainian-Australian woman uh, who we'd been tracking uh, through Ukraine and actually helping her, you know, with information on which borders are, are not too busy. And eventually we met up with her. And, uh, you know, she was uh, distraught and and just felt terrible because in the weeks leading up to the invasion, her Ukrainian husband was actually overseas in in Poland. And because she was worried, she convinced him to come back to Ukraine um, Uh. because, you know, things were were getting tense. And so he came back and then a week later war broke out and he was stuck. And so she had to say goodbye to him at the border and she doesn't know if she'll ever see him again uh, is what she told us. So, so. Honestly, it, it's just it, it really hard to comprehend and, and really hard to, you know, just believe that, it, that, that it's happening in the way that it is. And, and escalating quickly. We're recording this on a Thursday morning and, we, you know, we're talking about a war here and the, the fighting is intensifying and the Russian troops are, are building um, and really zeroing in on those major cities. David, you've been travelling across Ukraine for weeks. What have you discovered on the ground, especially in your early days along the disputed border regions with Russian-backed forces, uh, which took took areas in 2014? Look, it, it's, a, it's a complex situation. It, it's, it's not 
quite as simple as it as it seems, I suppose, is probably the, the best way to put it. Um, so an example of that um, is the, the the claim that you know Ukraine is is infested with Nazis is run by Nazis, which is is clearly nonsense. You know they've got a Jewish president for a start, but there is a, a tiny tiny grain of truth when it comes to what what is you know the claims from 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 Russian propaganda, and and that is. Uh, really largely down to one regiment in the Ukrainian armed forces called the Azov Regiment. And we actually caught up with them and, and interviewed one of the commanders. Now, they are, uh, were a sort of voluntary, of, a, a, a troop of volunteers back in 2014, um, as much of the Ukrainian army was. And ultra-nationalists, uh, they were, uh, you know, it was claimed that they were recruiting neo-Nazis from else, elsewhere in Europe. And, and the insignia that they wear on their arms looks a whole lot like a swastika. Uh, they say, oh, no, it's just that it's just two letters uh, superimposed over, over themselves. Um, it, it's just sort of a coincidence. Um, but look, whatever it is, they, they deny that they're neo-Nazis, obviously, uh, but for Russia, it's been something of a gift, uh, a propaganda gift, and they have absolutely milked it. Um, and you know, been, they've been pumping, um, you know, these Nazi claims. They're not new claims. They've been going uh, through the, the the sort of um, the, the propaganda mouthpiece media outlets, uh, not just in Russia, but in, in Ukraine as well, and particularly Eastern Ukraine. Uh, these claims have just been repeated and repeated and repeated for years. Uh, so that then, when we sent a crew into Donetsk. Uh, and interviewed some of the locals there. They absolutely believed it all that that mm. Ukraine was a, a Nazi state. And you know, one of the young women that we spoke to, um, she she was happy that, that the tanks were rolling in. She was she was happy that that you know they were going to be given protection from from the Nazis. So she believed it, that Putin was genuinely fighting Nazis. She did. She absolutely did, and she wasn't the only one. You know, se several of the, of the people that we spoke to there, you know, they, they believe it. Now, others don't, of course. And and the bottom line is, I mean, this this the claim, as I said, Jewish president, but also that the political arm of this Azov regiment, uh, they only got three percent of the vote. Um, so so look, there is an element of ultra nationalism as there is in, in, in many countries, mm. uh, that the idea that it's, that it's actually a Nazi state, of, of course, is absurd, but a, mm. a lot of people believe it. But I tell you what, what matters is that point you make, how many people believe it, and particularly in Russia at the mm. moment. I mean, if we look at the past week, uh, clearly things haven't gone the way Putin would have hoped. Uh, you know, mm. the, the determination and pushback from the Ukrainian people, first and foremost, the unity and resolve of the West has been quite remarkable as well. You know, it's been a bit of a rabble for some time and, and certainly the you know Afghanistan mess and all of that really dented the the standing of the West. But here we've seen this resolve when it comes to sanctions, when it comes to now sending in weapons and so on. So, you know, Putin um, you know, is in, in some ways has his back to the wall at the moment, needs to, and we can come to, you know, how he's changing tactics and, and what that's, that's going to mean for civilians in Ukraine. But in terms of where the Russian people are at on this, I mean, is it possible to say what level of support there is in Russia for Putin's position? I mean, is, is it just a madman who's running the show or is there widespread support for what he's doing? 
It's really hard to know at this point because I imagine you know a lot has changed in the last week or two when it comes to public opinion with all the sanctions coming down, the mm. ruble crashing, um, you know, the oligarchs being mm. being sanctioned. The people and, are starting to hard. feel the economic cost and now. the sporting, um, all of these well, things, Eurovision, just a, just a humiliation yeah. across the board. Absolutely, you know the cancellation of, of an entire country uh, in a way, yeah. Um, yeah. and and very um, tightly targeted and, and unified. The world, you know, by and large, entirely unified. And and you know, Putin has kind of got the opposite of what he was hoping for because now you're getting other nations trying to sign up to the EU and the EU being open, um, you know, to Ukraine joining and uh, other countries wanting to join NATO. It's it's kind of it's kind of, uh, you know, mm. if he was hoping to wedge Europe and, and try to split up uh, European countries, which is what, you know, many people thought a couple of weeks ago. Is well, what certainly he was with the, to the, do, sort of... yeah, the power that he has with gas uh, supplies into mm. Germany and other parts of Europe, that was certainly, you know, many expected going to be, as you say, something that would wedge Europe. Yeah, well, I mean, it may yet. We, we, I don't think we've seen the full impact of... Uh, you know, the, the gas, the potential gas crisis, uh, there's gas still flowing. Uh, but certainly as things stand at the moment, it looks like you, Europe is more united than ever and uh, more militarised than ever. I mean, Germany mm. uh, bumping up its military spending, uh, sending weapons uh, into into Ukraine. Which is know, a huge um, shift. It's, it's a massive shift. It's a, the whole, you know, what has changed in the space of one or two weeks is is. Absolutely tectonic, uh, the, the shift. And, and you know, that, I suppose, is what's kind of worrying as well because where does it lead? And, and, yeah. and, you know, we just don't know. Where does it end? Does it seem to be getting more intense on the ground with the Russians changing military strategy? They seem to be stepping up really the ferociousness of their attacks, Go- government mm. buildings, civilian infrastructure, apartment buildings, TV towers. This is, this is brutal stuff. Absolutely brutal stuff. Absolutely brutal. You know, we spent um, a good deal of time in in the city of Mariupol, which is uh, right down the southeast. It's kind of wedged between Russian territories, about 50 kilometres from the Russian border on one side, and then Crimea, which is held by Russia on the other side. Now, that city now is caught in a pincer move uh, where you have overwhelming Russian forces on both sides of, of the city and, uh, and you know, slowly, um, you know, um, demolishing the city. And, and you know, um, th- there's reports of mass casualties, uh, as it is the case elsewhere in, in Ukraine, Kharkiv, and to a, to a lesser extent, Kiev at, the, at this point, um, you know, the, the locals are holding on. They're, they're digging in and, and fighting back. Um, but, you know, how long can that morale last? Mm. Uh, when, when you know, residential neighbourhoods are being shelled and, and um, blown up by missiles. Well, equally though, how, you know, if, if Russia does take Kiev, um, how long can it? What does it intend to do there? Can it really hold on if there is ongoing oh. resistance and, and uh, you know, even the use of force uh, back against them? I just think that's going to be fascinating. Look, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts, uh, David, on the, the the dilemma for the West here in many ways. Yes, there's been a united response so far. But there was a moment, you might have seen it, there was a press conference that Boris Johnson did in Poland, was it, where, um, mm. you know, he's, he's there to show that they're supporting and so on. And I'm not sure, was it a journalist or an, or an activist got up and absolutely gave it to him, um, you know, talked <laughs> about, you know, the fact that people are dying in her country and, uh, you know, that the West really isn't uh, doing enough and, and so on. I mean, yes, they're now sending in weapons, but 
steps like a no-fly zone, they won't do. There's, there's always going to be this line they won't cross because they don't want to trigger World War Three. Exactly. I mean, you, you impose a, a no-fly zone. What does that mean? Ultimately, it means that uh, NATO or, uh, you know, NATO nations are, are going to be shooting down Russian planes. And, and mm. what, what happens after that, particularly with Putin, you know, not hiding his, his sort of uh, finger on the nuclear button, I suppose you could say, you know, putting, putting those forces on heightened alert, uh, you know, dropping hints about that if there was a, a big war, it would be nuclear and, and you know... It, it's it's frightening stuff, um, and yeah, how much you know? You get a lot of people um, ac- accusing countries like Britain of not doing enough, but I, I suppose the question is, well, what can they do? Mm. What should they do? This is the and, dilemma. And I don't know the answer to that. It, it's a massive dilemma. I mean, I, I just I actually think the sanctions and the way that they've been imposed in such a you know united and, and targeted Orchestrated. way yeah and, and i really think that they're, they're pretty impressive to be honest um and we'll see i mean the other problem everything you do has a problem because even the sanctions they seem to be very effective at this point but what happens uh, if putin's back is is more and more up against the wall i mean like mm. uh, he's just not the kind of person not that i'm a psychologist or anything but it does not strike me as the kind of person that will walk away from this willingly. No, it's psychology um, 101 reading his mind, though. It's really, you know, it's mm. this sort of narcissism. Uh, and mm. I don't think he has any any restraint on what he's doing. And that's the... Um, well, I mean, the ideal scenario from the Western perspective would be that these sanctions really bite those oligarchs and other Putin cronies to the degree where they're mm. going to do something. They're going to... Exactly. You know, there'll be some sort of internal uh, revolt to change course yep. here. But I just don't know. I mean, he and, surrounds and things, himself things in these yes-men. Um, yeah. I don't know if anyone really has the stomach to stand up to the guy. Well, that's true. But, you know, things do move, or at least in, in the past, uh, have moved uh, pretty fast and, and brutally in, mm. in, in mm. Russian politics. Yes. Now, you know, who knows if, if that'll happen again? I mean, and... You know, perhaps this is part of the reason that Putin is sitting so far away from his his generals when he when he meets with them at these uh, <laughs> that these absurdly crazy long, long, long table. tables. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, it, I, I think that is something you know clearly that that people are pushing for, uh, angling for, hoping for, perhaps. Um, well, but yeah, look the at the protests on the streets; they have mm. been significant, I think, given mm-hmm. the repression people mm. face for taking mm-hmm. to the streets in in Moscow, for instance. I mean, clearly. If that's just a percentage of the real feeling, the people who are prepared yep. to take that kind of action, it's saying something, isn't it, David? It's it's saying a lot. It's pretty pretty serious stuff. I, I think, though, you know, probably what's what has the potential to be more effective are, are those sanctions on the, on the oligarchs, and you know, they're mm. the they're the people that really have the power in that country, along with. Uh, you know, Putin and the generals, if they get to the point where they feel like they're suffering um, by their standards, uh, perhaps they they're can't the ones fly who want to shift. Yeah. That's right. Look, the, mm. the the weapons that everyone's committed to send in, and it is there's quite a list now, right? Germany, you mentioned the EU itself, uh, you know, France, the UK, even very small states in Europe, they're doing what they can. Canada is loaning, I think, of half a billion dollars for the Ukrainians to buy some weapons. Australia's chipping in seventy million dollars worth of, of weapons weapons. Um, any idea when and how this is going to hit the ground? Because I would imagine Putin is going to go out of his way to stop this arriving in the country. 
Oh, this this is uh, totally perplexing to me, and I just I just can't find any good information on uh. how they plan to get those weapons in. Uh, there, there's sort of two big questions that I have. One is, um, you know, why why isn't uh, Ukraine hitting that forty mile long convoy <laughs> from the air yeah. if they have the capacity? It's sitting uh, right the there. Question I, it's sitting right there. And and the second question I have is, well, well you know, um, how are we going to get all these weapons in? Um, and you know, if there is capacity to to fly them in. Um, or why hasn't Russia taken out that capacity? Or you know, you just it, mm. it, there's just a few, you know, giant questions for me that I. Well, just it's a, it's don't a know frightening prospect whether Putin regards uh, the convoy of weapons that are going to come in one way or another as an act of war against Russia. How does he respond to that? Is this where his threats start to come into play? It is. It is genuinely mm. frightening stuff. It is. It is because he's been very clear. You know, there will be grave consequences for any nation that interferes in what he calls a, a military oper- operation. Um, so, so again, you know, where does it where does it lead? Where does it end? It, it's very hard to see a, a good, a positive uh, outcome. There's, you've talked about the sort of European reaction and the fact that Europe is at one on this. Obviously, the United States is really key too. There's been a huge foreign reaction to the invasion. Here's the US President Joe Biden, and here's what he had to say at the State of the Union address this week. It shouldn't have taken something so terrible for people around the world to see what's at stake. Now everyone sees it clearly. We see the unity among leaders of nations, a more unified Europe, a more unified West. We see unity among the people who are gathering in cities and large crowds around the world, even in Russia to demonstrate their support for the people of Ukraine. Even in Russia, there's that line uh, about the protests. Mm. But, um, David, what do you make of the United States' reaction? As a former Washington Washington bureau chief for the ABC, the way Biden has reacted and the messages in that key speech? I I think the the messages themselves were were good. I'm not sure entirely about the delivery. It wasn't always great, but that's uh, that's Joe Biden, I suppose. Um, But but I think the words and the actions from the US have have been pretty pretty good and pretty um, pretty substantial. Obviously, the US does not want to get into another war, particularly um, a big war. Um, So again, it's um, it's very tricky ground for for Biden to be to be walking but on on the unity thing um i think it's just worth mentioning as well you look at the nations that abstained uh in this big vote um in in europe um trying to i think it was trying to kick russia out of the un uh, mm. security council the, the abstentions um india uh, nuclear state pakistan nuclear state uh, china nuclear state uh, North Korea, nuclear state, um, all of these. Now, an abstention obviously isn't isn't a rejection. It's kind of in the middle. But it, 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 I don't know. I just thought that was quite telling and, and you can read it different ways, I suppose. But uh, it, there's not complete unity. Mm. There's a lot of it. Um, but the, 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 big, the big players in, in this game um, are sitting back at this point 
and and I, I suppose waiting to see where things go. And, and mm. you know, I'd, I'd be a point. bit more comfortable. I'd be a bit more comfortable if they were all, or most of them, were, were kind of against Russia on the record. Yeah. It's a good point in terms of domestic politics in the US. At least there's a little bit more unity on this issue than uh, most other issues we've seen for some mm. time now in the United States. Hey, David Lipson, we'll let you go. And uh, look, terrific job over there. Um, I know it's not easy. You are working around the clock, so we do appreciate you uh, sharing your insights and analysis on this unfolding and um, huge issue there in Europe. Great to talk to you guys. Thanks, David. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time, your question time, the people's choice question Mm, time. What do we got? Uh, This question comes from Zach Bell, who writes, long-time listener to the party room, first-time emailer, love the show. Thank you. Um, First-time emailers are my favourite type of emailers. Um, uh, If you email more than once, I still love you. Don't don't get it wrong. (laughs) And Zach writes, I find myself heavily turned off when watching video highlights of Parliament. I can't get over the consistent jeering and school-like atmosphere during question time. My question is this. Why don't we make changes to the seating arrangements? I can't imagine such behaviour continue, continuing when you have political opponents on either side of you. Mm. Ooh, it's quite a radical idea, Spearsy. I like this idea. I like this idea. Look, um, my, my youngest child is in year three, and they've been through, you know, two years of a lot of homeschooling, right? And so what they do now, they're back in the classroom. Uh, every week they get put on a different table. So they're sitting with different kids each week, you know, obviously getting to know more of the kids in the class. And it's lovely. Uh, and, and she'll come home. Who did you sit with this week? She's got a new mate all the time, right? I think, you know, maybe this is the key. Week by week. Can you? I don't know. Um, Josh Frydenberg and Jim Chalmers sitting side by side. Uh, that, that could work. That could work. Okay, David... It's not going to happen. It's like a fantasy land. Look. Look. All right. Humor me, PK. Who would you like to see sitting next to each other? I actually like that combo too because that's an interesting combo you mentioned because Josh Frydenberg can be actually quite cruel to Jim Chalmers sometimes we and, and vice versa, to be fair, because Josh probably listened and yeah. said, hang on a minute, um, he, he doesn't say the loveliest things about me either. So they can, but it's that thing, right? Like, I'm not going to swear at you, David, looking, like yeah. staring at through your eyes. Penny, I'm not Wong, Penny Wong in the Senate and Simon Birmingham, I reckon they'd probably have a, they'd, they'd get on pretty well. I think they like each to, other. Um, yeah, each but, other. but it's an interesting idea that's not going to happen. So no. uh, is, is it childish, the behaviour? Yes. Is it juvenile? Is it often embarrassing, I agree with you. Um, and it needs to be managed well and still the best speaker we've seen. Tony Smith. He's still the best speaker that we've seen in, in that place yeah. that I've seen in my lifetime. Yep. Send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email uh, your questions to The Party Room at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. Also, I, we haven't said this for a while, but can you rate and review us? I haven't looked for a while. Then I went and had a look and I thought, I haven't been telling you to rate and review us. Especially it? if it's a good Yeah, rating, just go rate and review, review us. And if it's if you want to say something mean, just like, don't write it. Just write no. nice stuff. Um, Fran, are we back next week? I think so. That's my plan for her. <laughs> my plan for her. She will be back. But David, thanks for hanging out with me thanks the last couple of weeks. Thanks for having me. See you, David. See ya. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.